Hello and welcome everyone to another episode of the Let's Talk Surgery podcast for the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh. I'm your host, Ceci Hosanu, as always, paediatric surgery registrar based in Scotland. And today we have a continuation of our fantastic Faculty of Surgical Trainers series. And again, we're going international, this time to Florida. And I'm absolutely delighted and honoured to be joined by a surgeon that I'm sure a lot of our listeners are familiar with. And this is the amazing Professor Wexner, who is based in Florida, colorectal surgeon extraordinaire. How are you today? Thank you. Even better after that incredibly wonderful introduction. Well, um, I I can't but say how um, honoured we are to have you today and um, the work that you've done in colorectal surgery and for teaching and training very much speaks for itself. And um, as we were discussing earlier off air, uh, my co-host Greg, who's usually here with me, is a colorectal surgeon and was particularly excited to meet you. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners would be so excited that we're doing this. So um, today marks um, another continuation, as I said before, of our Faculty of Surgical Trainers series, and the focus is very much on training. And it's a great opportunity to know surgeons like yourself outside the clinical environment, if you will. So we'll start with a very nice open question. Who is Stephen Wexner? Well, I'm a colorectal surgeon, as you mentioned, at, at Cleveland Clinic, Florida. I've been working here something towards about 34 years. Um, I'm a, uh, an, an Anglophile, or I suppose that word has to be adjusted to include Scotland and Wales and, and Ireland as well, but I enjoy my time in the UK, and I'm very proud to, to be a fellow in all four uh, royal colleges um, in, in various sorts, honorary and ad, ad hominem. I think Edinburgh's ad hominem. Uh, Mike Griffith recently reminded me. Um, and um, uh, enjoy prior to COVID, enjoyed very much traveling, have a passion for teaching, um, and uh, have uh, two wonderful sons. Uh, couldn't convince either of them to become uh, physicians or surgeons, let alone colorectal surgeons. Uh, one is in private equity, and uh, the other one uh, does uh, advanced algorithms for one of the Facebook platforms. Uh, so they're in totally different walks of life. And my my much better half, uh, Dr. Mariana Verho, is our chief of staff um, here at Cleveland Clinic, Florida, and our head of pathology and lab medicine. So that's kind of me personally, as well as me professionally, more or less in a nutshell. Fantastic. Extremely succinct. And um, I, I think um, the thing with doctors' children is they either all become medics or none of them become medics, which is a, is a theme I see all the time. But it's so nice that you have that um, wonderful family around you. And um, as I say, your, your career is extremely distinguished. But I think we should just kind of move a little bit away from the medical and the clinical side of things and explore a bit about teaching and training, which you mentioned is something you enjoy. So the first in our series of standard questions is in your time as a surgeon and when you were developing as a trainee, so to speak, who was your best trainer and why? You know, I think the common theme amongst my best trainers when I was uh, well, a registrar, we call it here, resident. Um, even a medical student, uh, the common theme was that those individuals had a passion for what they did and were able to have this infectious infusion of it into others. And that translated to me initially for some other aspects of surgery when I was a med student. But what really grabbed me is when I started my surgical training, 
more or less uh, like a, a junior house officer, an intern, basically. Um, that right from the get-go, there were a couple of colorectal surgeons at, at Roosevelt Hospital in New York um, who started to bring me to meetings and encouraged me to start preparing things for presenting at meetings. And I was very fortunate. Um, it was not, Roosevelt was not by any stretch of the imagination an academic center at all. Um, but these guys were, were really passionate about what they did and just said, listen, if you want to do this, you might consider publishing some stuff. And in those days, it was a bit different than now getting all the data. But I started getting manuscripts together. And um, and I, I guess I don't want to go too far down the track. But but shall we say that the, the ability for them to encourage me in their passion to become my passion, tell me, um, develop my career was absolutely fundamental. And uh, that, that stretched beyond just the operating room. They, they would offer me things like, okay, well, if you've got some time um, or you're on a rotation that, you know, that people don't mind, come over to the office. I mean, this was by no means part of what we did in training. It was all in-hospital training. We didn't do anything in, in the private offices, but they said, come over to the office. And so I got exposed to this facet of life that as a resident, I never would have seen because they had the interest in developing my passion and um, that it, it really just went from there. So I knew, I knew from when I was a small child, I wanted to be a surgeon, but, uh, but I knew from when I started my internship because of particularly two people, Tom Daly and Rick Brave, uh, both of whom were retired. I, I knew that I wanted to be a colorectal surgeon. That's absolutely fantastic. And um, a lot of surgeons that I speak to have the same sort of origin story. Those individuals or that individual, uh, myself included, that showed such enthusiasm and such interest in your personal and professional development that it really inspired you to go down that track. And yeah. um, I hope um, that I personally can pay it forward and inspire someone to do pediatric surgery, which is something I absolutely love. And you speak well, indirectly as-, as a result of those two, one of whom Rick Brabe had trained with Stanley Goldberg. And you see it all passes along. So I'll explain that in a second. So Rick was invited to speak at the course of Stanley Goldberg. I did this annual postgraduate course. And he said to me, well, if you'd like to prepare the lectures for me, I'll bring you there. So I, I got to meet Dr. Goldberg when I was maybe a second or third year resident, probably, but I went at least twice. And when I uh, was there as a second year resident, I think, I met Bill Heald. And, and Stan knew I was an Anglophile, and he sat me with, with Bill Heald at a dinner, and, and we got friendly. And I, I ended up as a, uh, again, if not a junior house officer, senior house officer at most, but not even yet a re- full register. I ended up going over to Basingstoke and spending time with Bill and he became one of my main mentors, um, just going backwards and forwards to Basingstoke and staying at his home and operating uh, with him in Basingstoke. And, and that, that friendship has maintained for, you know, close to 40 years. Um, And uh, it was, so, you know, one leads to another. And, And I, you know, so through Brave, I got friendly with Goldberg and he introduced me to Bill Heald and then subsequently to David Jagelman, who hired me at Cleveland Clinic, Florida, who was another mentor. And David was English. He had trained with Harold Ellis at Westminster and he trained at the Gordon and at St. Mark's and then came over to uh, to the U.S. in around 1974 or so to Cleveland Clinic. 
And so that sort of lineage continues because David had been trained by Harold Ellis. And I, through David, became friendly with Harold Ellis and actually relied upon Harold to give me a wonderful tour of the uh, uh, Royal College Museum, Royal College in London, of course, the, the Hunterian Museum, which I used a lot of what he told me in my Sage's presidential address in like 2006 or seven. Um, and so I got a great picture of, of Harold standing next to John Hunter. And I realized, you know, it all goes down because it, you know, John Hunter ultimately to Harold Ellis and Harold Ellis to David Jagelman to me. So mentorship goes beyond people you'll ever meet because it's indirect from the people who train them as well. It does. It's just like the gift that keeps on giving and such heavy hitters in the surgical world that you've just mentioned there. It's absolutely fantastic. So now you're um, a bit more um, advanced in, in your career. You must have trained so many surgeons in your time. What's the thing that you enjoy the most about training? Um, seeing them succeed, you know, seeing them enthusiastic, as I hope I still am, uh, and then subsequently seeing them succeed. So I, I've trained uh, b- between in the clinical program and in my research program, hundreds of people from, from all over the world. And uh, our training program here in, in Florida is, is uh, if not the largest, it's one of the largest in the U.S., um, so just by the maths, as more and more years go by, if other programs are training one or two and we're training five or seven, the percentage of people in leadership becomes more and more. So when I see that my alumni are in charge of, uh, of residency programs, fellowship programs, sections, departments, you know, universities, whatever, it's tremendously rewarding um, it's a bit like, you know, you, you give somebody a fish, they have a meal, you teach them to fish, they have a meal for life. And that's what happens. So you teach people how to carry on the practice of colorectal surgery and they keep doing it and they then teach others. So when we interview uh, applicants for our program, they're often the, you know, sort of quote unquote offspring of our trainees. So they're second generation. And, and at this point, sometimes even third generation, like it's somebody who was sent to us to train and now they've gone back and now they've trained somebody else's come to us. So it's great, the perpetuation and watching people succeed uh, and being able to continue because there's, there's mentorship and there's sponsorship. So in this day and age, sometimes it's not teaching people directly in part through social media, in part just through platforms like this one, telecommunications, you end up working with people and helping people's career with whom you've never directly clinically interacted, but they have that same spark, that same passion, and you're able to help people with different things. And a a key example in in, in the UK for me is Manish Chand, who I I didn't until more recently work with him clinically, um, but we crossed paths many times and worked together and developed programs. And I I think those opportunities are far greater now because of uh, social media and electronic communications than they were when I was a trainee. Absolutely fantastic. I mean, I've um, done a little bit of teaching and training, mostly of medical students, and it's really nice to see them, as you say, grow up and pursue careers of their own. And it must be incredibly fulfilling for you to see all these people go ahead and do great things. So that's absolutely wonderful. So moving a little bit away from clinical talk, um, this is kind of one of my favorite bits because I'm a huge lover of music. Do you play music in theater? And if you do, what do you play? 
Um, I don't personally. However, I let the residents and fellows uh, choose what they like. So uh, I'm not particularly um, fussy about it, you know, what, because honestly, I'm, I'm in and out and doing things and they're, you know, they're there and they, you know, from before the patients asleep till after they wake up. So I let them pick what they like and um, listen to it. I, I don't mind. I just, you know, the volume has to be manageable because you're still there to operate, not to be in a, you know, concert or nightclub environment. So it's meant to be background music, not foreground music. Um, so as long as everybody can hear each other in a normal tone of voice and the anesthetist can hear what's necessary with all the bells and whistles in their apparatus, I'm fine with whatever they play. I think you win the award for the most diplomatic answer to that question in the, what, 10 or 12 of these that we've recorded so far, because we've had from people saying they will only listen to country and Western to, I don't listen to any music at all and no one is allowed to. So incredibly diplomatic and gracious of you. Now, (laughs) moving on, you have been sent to a desert island and you've been told you can only take one surgical tool or instrument which would you take? So what's your favorite surgical tool that you just cannot live without? Um, diathermy. That's a good one. It's great. Diathermy is great. You can cut with it. You can buzz with it. It's, it's great. Right. Make incisions, get hemostasis, you know, develop planes, excise things. Sure. You can. It's a, it's a great bit of kit. So um, on to the next bit, another favorite of mine, books. What is the one book that you've enjoyed the most, medical or non-medical, or one of each, if you like? Uh, that I mean, I, I th- this one's harder to be diplomatic, given the, that I've uh, written a few books here and there you myself. Have? So I, I, I don't, I'm not sure I necessarily um, have a favorite. Um, I think one of the most memorable for me of a surgical textbook would probably be recounting back to that very first episode of, of operating with Bill Heald in something in the early 1980s. And, and the TME wasn't even yet used as an expression as TME. It was just, you know, the rectal excision. And, and he with Lockhart Mummery had done this very small photographic uh, and illustrated atlas of, of rectal excision, a tiny little thing. But he personalized it to me and and gave it to me for helping him uh, in the operating room uh, on a case, a particularly challenging, vexing case. And he gave me this very nice book, which I still have. And I think that probably, in terms of meaningful books, uh, I I think would be it. In terms of, of, uh, and I do try to read a lot of books, uh, but in terms of a favorite of... um, non-surgical books that that might be that, that one's a bit tougher um again i like harold ellis's book the, which was one of my main uh, resources for um the talk i put together for my presidential address for sages I, I read probably a dozen or 15 different history of surgery books and i think his may have well been the most uh, the easiest read the quickest read uh for a book but i like i like novels by uh, there's a fellow who used to write, maybe still does, for the Miami Herald named Carl Hyassen, who writes these books that are very f- South Florida-centric. If you live down near Miami, it, they make a lot of sense. I'm not sure how much sense they make if you don't live here, but that's they're the kind of books I find myself laughing out loud on an airplane reading it because he has this very colorful verbiage, uh, kind of like a modern-day 
American version of maybe P.G. Woodhouse, that, you know, if you lived in Victorian England, uh, probably London. In fact, P.G. Woodhouse made a lot of sense, and a lot of the humor in it was, was really very specific to a period of time and a place. And I think Carl Hyassen is the same for, for Miami and, you know, in, in the 2000s. That's my the absolute thing I, I love so much about asking that question, because I get so many book recommendations. A lot of the listeners will know that I, I read like almost anything. And I love P.G. Woodhouse. It's so funny. I find it just maybe surprisingly relatable. I maybe belong to a different time. I don't know. But um, thank you so much. Um, you've given me something else to potentially pick up and look at. And with regards to that little surgical book, that anecdote that you made, um, I think it's just such a gift, the fact that so many of our great trainers, yourself included, can write things and impart knowledge to people millions of miles away. So that's absolutely fantastic that you had that really special memento that you could keep and, you know, learn from before TME was a thing. I I can't imagine TME not being a thing, but there you go. (laughs) So um, as surgeons, we're all very busy. You yourself are an incredibly busy man. How do you keep a work-life balance? And I'm searching for tips here because I know I'm a bit terrible at keeping a work-life balance. So any wisdom you can impart will be gratefully appreciated and received. Yeah, you know, I'm not necessarily sure I'm I'm a shiny example for work-life balance, um, but I might be able to share another perspective, which is when you're, if you love what you do, it's a bit hard to stop. Um, you know, maybe it's not the healthiest thing. I don't know, but it, but it's a bit hard to stop, and you tend to just sort of keep going until everything's finished. Plus, you put your patients first. So, to whom do you say no? You know, that patient who needs to see you at the end of the day, or the patient who's ringing on the weekend. I mean, you know, you have to, in my view, be available um, to people. So it's a bit hard to say no. But the positive side of that is that your children see what it's like when you work hard and even though my children are in completely different fields they have the they have the same work ethic which i you know they always tell me they attribute to me as they're just you know the way i live my life and and they you know emulate it i think they tend to know a bit more how to take some free time than i did but nonetheless that kind of they see what it's like to drive and the other thing that they see is the passion and they both chose things that they absolutely love they adore doing and that's key. You know, if you love it and you work hard at it, those are two good examples to set. So is that a work-life balance? I'm not sure. But, you know, looking at the dividend down the road, knowing that I have two sons who love what they do and do the best that they can every day um, and have a fantastic work ethic. I mean, to me, that's a great payoff for however it is. I lived my life uh, all those years they were living home with me. That's some great advice. I mean, the patients are the reason we do what we do. And I find surgery as an art a a real privilege to have the opportunity to interact with people in such an intimate level and to impact change. And even when things are difficult or you're tired, just remembering why you love what you do is so important. And I'm sure your sons are just extremely proud of all you've done. And you must be so proud of the fact that you've given them that work ethic and that desire to do something they're passionate about, even if it's not colorectal surgery. So, Well, it, it also teaches them a kind of um, altruism because, I mean, I can remember particularly my younger son, you know, if I had 
phone and say, listen, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to be late tonight. Uh, I mean, granted, not as a tiny kid, but, you know, let's say a teenager, say, uh, yeah, I'm going to be late something, you know, this patient has got to go to the operating room for such. I said, that's fine, dad. He said, that patient needs you now. He said, we can have dinner later. You know, it, it teaches you that you don't always put yourself first. Yeah, indeed. And it's it's such a good way of, of living life. I think nowadays, especially with the pandemic, um, it's kind of exposed the, the worst of things amongst the human race, but also the best with some real inspiring stories of random acts of kindness. And I think altruism is a very important um, trait surgeons need to have, not only amongst um, themselves or to their patients, but just to the world at large. So, yeah, very important. Yeah. Now, last but not least, um, in your career, I would like from you one pearl of wisdom, which is the best bit of advice that you've ever given or ever received. And again, I'm collecting tips. Well, I, I think that, you know, there, there's a couple of different um, areas. What I've received is different than what I'll say. I'll, I'll first say what I'll say, which is the most important thing is your integrity. And anything almost anything can be taken from you against your will. You can lose your job, your house, your money, your family, your life, you know, your health, any of that can be taken from you against your will. The only thing is you have to voluntarily give up your integrity. Nobody can take that from you. And it's therefore it's the most prized possession because it's the only one you truly 100% control. And, and therefore you should absolutely never compromise it or, or give it up. Integrity is, is what it's all about. Now, that in a way relates to something my old chief of surgery, Roosevelt, Walt Wickern used to say, which is that there are three kinds of surgeons, surgeons who operate and therefore get complications, surgeons who don't operate, therefore don't get complications, and dishonest surgeons, which is, sort of relates to the integrity thing, but that's what, that, that's what he used to say. And I think um, I, I would amend that to say, you know, you're going to get complications. Try to never get the same one twice, right? I mean, at least try and do something uh, a bit off in a different direction. Learn from it and, and try to not have that same thing happen to you again or to your patients, not really to you. Have the same thing not happen to another patient. And whatever it is, learn from it because you will make mistakes, but just try to make a different one the next time. Absolutely fantastic. And what a way to end the podcast. Um, I've picked up so many good tips. And I feel the summary of this to me has been hard work, altruism, integrity, and learning. And I think that's an excellent note on which to end the podcast. Um, now, Professor Wexner, thank you so much for giving up your time to this little series. I've learned so much and I'm sure the listeners would really enjoy it. Um, Greg, when you finally listen to this, I'm sure you're going to be so, so jealous that I have met one of the people that pops up so many times in our textbooks. And um, I'd like to formally invite you, if you have another bit of time in future, to come back on the podcast and talk a bit more about your work and your fascinating career. Um, guys, until next time, please stay safe, be kind to each other and take care. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.